was dancing. I fully expected Tim to be dancing at the one step beyond with the nutty boys. Because it's my youth, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes, you're so much younger than me. Um, it's great. So I'm to talk to you about mission. Because to me, going one step beyond is what mission's all about. Going one step beyond the normal. Beyond the comfortable. Beyond the everyday. That's mission. Sometimes, and I get really worked up about this, sometimes we think mission is something that the church does. We think mission is a part of what we do. We've got our mission committee and our worship committee and our children's committee, and mission's like a a bit of it. That's totally wrong. Mission is the whole thing. God's mission has a church. That's the way it should be. God's mission has a church. Mission, it's the whole deal. The question of geography is where you get into mission committees and sending people overseas. That's a different question. Mission is the whole thing. It's why you and I have come to Christ. We have come to Christ to be engaged in mission, every single one of us. So if you're thinking about sitting back and saying, well, you know, my days are behind me, I'm in my... 50s or whatever it may be I'm, I'm done with that you know, of course I'll stay back and pray for those who do mission or I'll give money for those who do mission but the people who are going to go and do it are all those young ones sitting around us and I'll, I'll be praying for them I'm sorry mission is for every single person sitting in this room it's not just for the few it's not just for the handful every one of us engaged in mission and I'm going to show you that very quickly tonight by looking with me in the book of Acts So if you've got a Bible or a device that accesses a Bible, please open it. I decided I was going to preach on this last time I sat in St. Matt's two weeks ago, because Tim was preaching on Acts 9. And I thought, well, I think I'll preach on that as well. Not because he did a bad job, he did a great job. But there's so much in Acts. If I'm going to preach on more than Acts 9, I'm going to preach on Acts 9 and a bit of 10, a bit of 11, touch of 13... That's probably why there's no Bible reading tonight, because that will be about 20 minutes worth. So we're going to have a bit of a flick through and have a little look at mission, because there's examples on every page of the book of Acts about what I'm talking about. Going one step beyond. Every single mission trip, every single missional activity begins with a single step. Mission begins with one step beyond what you're comfortable with. Look at Acts chapter 9. This is what Tim preached on last week. You've got this situation in Acts chapter 9, looking at verse 10 to 16. I'll read it again. This is happening just after Saul has seen this blinding light on the road to Damascus. Remember Saul? He's the guy whose life's work was to persecute Christians, to kill them, to destroy this sect that was destroying Judaism that Saul loved so much. So he's been blinded on the road. And in Damascus, we read, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. That's a great way to start when the Lord speaks to you. Yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias says, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord says to Ananias, go. This man 
is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias goes to the house and enters it. Tim spoke about this shock, this absolute horror for Ananias. Having a nice, meditative, quiet time. And the Lord says, go. And he's like, yes, Lord, what does he want me to do? He says, equivalent for us today, go and lay hands on the leader of ISIS. Go and lay hands on Muhammad Omar and tell him that I've sent you to him. It's certain death. Lord, you want me to do what? I want you to go one step beyond what you're comfortable with. And he goes. Ananias goes. Read on. Look. Paul has the same experience. Acts 9 from verse 17. When this happens, Ananias turns up, prays for him. Scales fall from his eyes. Saul sees. He knows what he's got to do. He's immediately baptized. After taking some food, he regains his strength. He spends several days with the disciples in Damascus and at once begins to preach in the synagogues, causing all sorts of trouble. Causing all sorts of trouble. Because this man is so well learned in Judaism. This man was schooled at the feet of a major Pharisee called Gamaliel. And here he is arguing that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, not even arguing, but proving that Jesus is the Christ. And so immediately the Jews decide, let's kill him. We're going to kill him. Hang on, I've just been delivered, I've just had my sight restored, I've just been baptized, I've started my ministry, and the result of my ministry is people want to kill me. My first mission activity ends in me running away. Look, verse 25, is it? My eyesight. Verse 25, his followers take him by night and lower him in a basket through an opening in the wall, and Paul runs away. Persecution comes. He goes off to find the disciples. Nobody wants to know him. This man's a troublemaker. This man causes difficulty. We don't want anything to do with him. So finally, good old Barnabas turns up, brings him to the apostles. And the apostles receive him. But then he goes out again, and he starts, in verse 29, talking and debating with the Grecian Jews. And what do they try and do? They try to kill him. So finally, the brothers learn of this, and they send him off to Tarsus. Quick, get that guy out of here. And then next verse, then the church has peace. Oh, get that firebrand out, put him in Tarsus. In fact, send him home. That's where Tarsus was. That's where Paul came from. Go home, Paul. Go and start your mission at home. Saul suffered much. And you want to read how much he suffered, you go and look at 2 Corinthians 11. And you see how much came true that Ananias said, that the Lord told Ananias... I'll show him how much he's got to suffer for my name. If anybody went one step beyond, it was Saul of Tarsus. Flip over the page, look at Acts 9.34. This is one you don't think about very often. Aeneas is called. Peter turns up with Aeneas. And he finds him, a paralytic bedridden for eight years. And Peter says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. Well, talk about a step beyond. He's got to stand up. He's not walked for eight years. In faith, he's going to stand up and his ankles are going to be made strong. That's a step beyond, isn't it? Keep going. Acts chapter 10. Here we meet this guy Cornelius. You know who Cornelius was? Centurion. Roman. Ooh. Everyone hates the Romans then. I mean, what have the Romans have ever done for us? 
No, let's not go there. Everybody hated the Romans. Here's Cornelius, a man in the centur- a centurion in the Italian regiment. His whole family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need, and he prayed to God regularly, and he had a vision of an angel who said, Cornelius. And Cornelius said, what? And the angel said, send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon called Peter who's staying with Simon the Tanner by the sea. Now, again, these things are so familiar to us that we forget the impact it would make. The Lord has just told a centurion, a senior figure in Caesarea, a major port, a well-to-do sort of guy, the top of the top, to go and get an unschooled fisherman from a house that stinks of we. Because that's what tanners use. They use urine. He's told him, go and get this unschooled, common Jewish fisherman who stinks of pee and bring him to your house. That's a step beyond for a centurion, but instantly he obeys. He steps out and he invites a social outcast into his home out of obedience to God. And then he brings his old family to hear what Peter's got to say. Mark that. That's really important. He brings his whole family to hear what Peter's got to say. We read on in Acts 10, down to verse 9. Look at that. What's going on here? About noon the following day, as they're on their journey and approaching the city, that's the guy sent out by Cornelius, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners, containing all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth, birds of the air. And a voice said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, says Peter. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Don't call anything unclean that God's called clean. And this happened three times. What's that all about? We learn as we read on that Peter is being called to do something that is one step beyond. He is being called to welcome into his house these Romans that Cornelius is about to send. In fact, he's called to go back with them, to go in with Cornelius and to even eat with him and be with him, which is anathema to a Jew. It makes him unclean. It doesn't happen. It's a ridiculous thing that God's asked him to do. It's completely not in keeping with anything normal in Peter's life. It's one step beyond. God shows him that he's not to discriminate. He's to go to those who are not his own kind. And he got a whole pile of flack for that in the next chapter, in chapter 11. God's stirring up the church. God's scattering the church through persecution in Acts chapter 11. The gospel comes to the Jews and it's got to go to the Gentiles. The Jewish people are diasporized. They're scattered because of persecution. God using all things for good. God, in his purpose, for his church, scattering the people. And everybody has to go. Everybody gets sent out. Everybody is scattered. Almost everybody. The gospel comes to the Gentiles, to us. And then Barnabas gets sent out to find if the church that's getting established there in Antioch is doing all right. And he sees all these Gentiles have come to Christ. And he's looking at them all and he's saying, 
Who can help? Who do I need to bring? Who would be good at teaching these guys? Got it. I'll go and get Paul from Tarsus. And Barnabas goes up and brings Paul out from his home and they start in Antioch. Twelve months teaching the church in Antioch, the place where they were first called Christians. And the thing grows and the thing explodes and the missionary journeys start in Antioch and people go out. They go to the tribes. They go to the different countries in Asia. They go around everywhere. Everywhere in the known world. Even to Rome. They are called to go one step beyond. You can say that all that they were doing was exactly what their Lord and Master had also been called to do. Jesus. He was called to take one step beyond, wasn't he? He was called to set aside his glory in heaven. He was called to come and be incarnate on the earth and to live on this earth like us yet without sin, taking upon himself our sin, dying on a cross for your sin and for my sin, being raised to life three days later. That was a step beyond, hey? As the master, so shall the servant be. As the master, so shall the servant be. Sent, sent out. God, you see, does extraordinary things with ordinary people. In fact, this most extraordinary thing about Paul was how awful he was. How desperate he was. What a murderer he was. What an evil man he was. God used him. God used Peter. Pretty foolish fisherman. Kept putting his foot in it. God used that Jared guy once. You know? He called this strange forester from Scotland who didn't really want to go anywhere. Wasn't ever very good at languages at school. Got a C in his French O level. Oh, I was proud of that. And uh, never learned anything else until I did a bit of New Testament Greek, which wasn't very useful in northwest China. Sends me out to China. To China! You know, I got sick going to Spain. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to go over there. I wasn't looking for adventure. Well, that's not strictly true. I was looking for some kind of adventure. You know, I wanted well-paid, luxurious adventure. That was my kind of adventure. You know, send me, Lord, on a five-star cruise liner. Send me, Lord, and let me live in luxury. Singapore, that sounds good. No. I was sitting in a church in 1996 in Cambridge. And in the middle of the service, out of nowhere, I really experienced the presence of God. It was the same day I was thinking about asking my girlfriend to marry me. And I decided I was going to ask her. So I'd already bought a ring. And uh, I was going to ask her the next night. This girlfriend, by the way, who's now my wife, wanted to be a missionary in South America. She'd been there for a year. She spoke fluent Spanish. She'd come back looking for a husband who spoke Spanish. I could order beer in Spanish. But it wasn't really very useful on the mission field. So uh, there we were, and there am I, sitting in a church in Cambridge, and the Lord meets me in a powerful way, in the midst of all my anger, in the midst of all my just feeling really rubbish that day. An old man in front of me turns round and starts talking to me. And through this man, who'd been a missionary in China in 1941, God called me to China. To China! Come on! I had to go home that night and tell my, tell my girlfriend... It's like this, love. You know, you know you've been praying for me to be a missionary all the time. It's great. It's finally happened. I've been called. I'm going to China this summer. I'm going to teach English. It's going to be brilliant. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you looking very happy? And she says, what about me? 
Oh, yeah, where's my ring? Would you like to marry me and come too? No joke. Is exactly how it happens. And miraculously, she said, yes. But we didn't go to China that summer. We did get married the year after. And over a, pr- a process of several years, five years to be exact, of exploration, of prayer, we went to China, 2002. And we learnt Chinese. How? By the grace of God. Learnt Chinese. Ministered there. In China, you saw lots of the photographs. Got called to work with Muslims in China. And I've spoken here about Muslims before. One step beyond, walk into a mosque. First time you walk into a mosque. Sounds terrifying, doesn't it? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's not terrifying at all. These guys, these Muslim men, they are so lovely. Honestly, they are lovely. They walk into their mosque and they say to you, Where are you from? Oh, yeah, well, I'm from the UK. Oh, what do you believe? Second question. Do you know, I've been back in the UK nearly three years. Nobody's ever asked me what I believe. I've not been in Tesco's and they said, what do you believe? I've not even been in the church and they've asked me what I believe. They let me preach. Nobody's asked me what I believe. You know? You want to be careful. <laughs> you, get to, you get to ask. Second question in a mosque in northwest China. What do you believe? Now you tell me. Easy or difficult to share the gospel? And the second question somebody asks you is, what do you believe? Hey, doors are wide open. God calls. God equips. God opens the door. God does extraordinary things through ordinary people who are what? Willingly and wholly submitted to him. There's a famous Yorkshireman. I don't like talking about Yorkshiremen because I'm from Lancashire. But forgive me, Yorkshiremen, in our midst there's always one. There's a famous Yorkshireman called James Hudson Taylor. You heard of Hudson Taylor? Hands up if you've heard of Hudson Taylor. Don't be embarrassed if you haven't. Okay, this is the 150th year of the date that James Hudson Taylor was called to start the China Inland Mission, who has now become OMF, who I work for. This weak, sick, 21-year-old, kind of namby-pamby-looking fella, quite a a weak guy, a lot of illness, was called by God to pray for 24 skilled, willing workers to go to the unreached provinces of China. This is 1865. You know, China's not open. There are gunships there. There are riots taking place. There's no stability taking there. Foreigners can't go in the interior. It's not safe. Taylor sends 24. We're celebrating our 150th year, and he's going to show you a little video clip that uh, Philip's going to put up for me. Uh, This is a man who went one step beyond. The church in China today has got 70 million people. 1865, when James Hudson Taylor cried out to God on Brighton Beach for willing, skillful workers to join him in taking the gospel to unreached inland provinces of China. And so the China Inland Mission was founded. Within a year, Taylor, his family, and 16 workers set sail aboard the Lamamir to China. By the end of 1866, 24 workers were active in four stations across inland China, preaching the gospel and planting churches. Other missionaries of the time sought to preserve their British ways, but Hudson Taylor was convinced that the gospel would only take root if missionaries were willing to identify with the culture of the people they wanted to reach. 
let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese, that by all means we may save some. The following years saw a period of expansion for the China Inland Mission. By 1888, the CIM had sent 294 people to 14 provinces, and growth continued despite many hardships. Between 1898 and 1900, during the Boxer Uprising, hundreds of missionaries and thousands of Chinese Christians were put to death. The CIM lost 58 missionaries and 21 children. Through this time of persecution, the CIM grew in number to 933 people, and by 1939, almost 200,000 Chinese and minority people had been baptized. The turning point came in 1949 when Mao Zedong and his Communist Party took power in China. Despite wanting to stay, by 1950 it became too difficult and the China Inland Mission had to leave. It was an uncertain time, but hope came when the decision was made to move out to new countries. Headquarters were established in Singapore and workers spread out to surrounding countries, each taking the gospel of Jesus in all its fullness. The name was changed to the Overseas Missionary Fellowship and then to OMF International in the 1990s. As OMF workers have sought to reach the vast and diverse people of East Asia, their skills and ministry have had to develop and diversify too. Alex rode his motorbike around Thailand, handing out Bible tracts. David broadcast Christian radio programs into Cambodia. Makino and Izu disciple students in Thailand. Kirk travels to the nomads of Mongolia, sharing the good news of Jesus. Irene trains Sunday school teachers in the Philippines. Carolyn prepares new Asian believers in the UK to return to East Asia. Sarah makes jewelry with marginalized women in China. And Reen and Micah share the gospel through coffee farming in Thailand. In 2006, Dr. Patrick Fung became the general director, the first Asian leader to hold this position in OMF International. Today we have over 1,400 workers from over 40 nations, serving among approximately 100 people groups in East Asia, as well as among the Asian diaspora in Europe, Africa, the Americas, New Zealand, Australia and in Asia. This is how God has used us for the past 150 years. How will he use you? And that's the question, isn't it? How will he use you? How will he use you? This is where I want to challenge two areas of your life, asking every single one of you to say, where am I going one step beyond for Jesus? I want to challenge you first in your global mission awareness, in your role as a world Christian. And second, I want to challenge you in your local mission engagements. First of all, you know, We should all be global Christians. We are global Christians. We need to broaden our horizons, you know. We have such access to information, to news, to prayer information. We know so much about the world. But we've got to be disciplined in using that knowledge, using that information for good. It's a missional activity, educating yourself about the world church, about the situation in the world. We watch the news and we grimace. And we should grimace, but we should pray. We should use the news as a prayer tool. We should turn each item on the news into prayer. 
We should be getting up to speed, using information that people like Operation World. You've seen that book, Operation World? Fantastic book. You've got to get a copy. It goes through systematically every country of the world and tells you the prayer, new, the prayer needs and the current stages of the church. It's brilliant. There's an online version that's free as well. So you can use that every day. It tells you what to pray for. It's fantastic. Make it a part of your daily devotional life. Engage with prayer. Use Twitter well. Do you know, I, didn't, I wasn't much of a twit for a long time. It's, that's not what they call them, is it? But I, I, I started using Twitter about a year ago. It's brilliant. I never write anything. People keep following me. I never say anything. That's okay. I just use it to get the news I want to get. I sign up for different feeds from different parts of the world or different agencies. And it comes in all the time. So if I've got a spare five minutes, I open my Twitter up. I try and avoid the bath rugby or the English rugby or the cricket or the football. And I try and go to things about the world church and turn them to prayer. We should all be engaging in prayer for mission partners that we know. There's tons of information. There's too much information probably. We need to focus to ask the Lord, what area of the world are you calling me to invest my prayer time? Ask him. What area of the world have you put on my heart? What person, mission partner, have you put on my heart? Maybe you want to pray for the church in Syria. Heaven knows they need prayer. Maybe you want to pray for the church in a land we never ever hear anything about. Burkina Faso. Maybe you want to find out what's going on in Taiwan. What's God saying to you? And listen to him and take that information and commit to making a difference. You know, we sometimes sit there when we pray, if we pray. We sit there. I don't know if you've ever found this, but you find yourself sitting there praying for things that you think, well, is it actually really going to make any difference? If I sit here and I pray for the president of China to become a Christian, is that just not being a bit silly? What does the Bible tell us? The prayer of a righteous man is what? Powerful and effective. Do we believe the word of God? If we do, we would make these ridiculous prayers. You know, heaven knows, somebody prayed for me before I was converted. It was a ridiculous prayer. That this fella should come to Christ was as ridiculous as Xi Jinping, the president of China, coming to Christ. promise you. Every single one of us who's come to Christ, it was equally miraculous as Xi Jinping coming to Christ. So don't make your prayers too small. Pray big things in faith. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We need to be engaged. We can do these short-term missions and they're fantastic. Don't let anybody put you down on those. And we, if you were at that fair um, earlier on this afternoon, there are tons of opportunities. We in OMF have got these brilliant opportunities. Anybody like football, perhaps? Not so many in this room. That's interesting. We did this great short-term football evangelism team in Thailand. You know you go to Thailand? Thailand is like 1% Christian. Thailand has been evangelized thoroughly in most places. We've had workers in Thailand since 1951. The church is tiny. And yet, you go to any university campus, to any school, with a team of fellas or ladies to play football, this is what happens the school will close and the teachers will encourage all the kids to go and play football with you to practice their English. And then you can do a, a presentation about your culture and then you can tell them about your life 
you can basically share the gospel with everybody in that school in a two to three week trip. Now, we've only got one of these football teams each year and I can't for the life of me understand why there are not people banging the door down saying, I love football, I love to play football. Thailand sounds great. The gospel, I'm passionate about these three things. Send me, Lord. You know, we have different teams. If you love music and kids' work, wow, we have this team in Japan every summer that does a kids' gospel music. And they go around the churches encouraging these small evangelical churches in Japan, ministering to their kids. And the kids invite their school friends. And you get this gospel opportunity in a hard country like Japan, working alongside long-termers who speak Japanese. Why wouldn't anybody beat your door down to go on those teams? I'd love to go on those teams. So these are the things. And if any of these are interesting for you, you come and see me afterwards and I've got some leaflets about it. Oh, you can teach English in northwest China. Now that's the best place on earth to go, northwest China. Hey, Anna. Anna spent ten years of her life in northwest China and she survived. You'd be alright spending three weeks there. It's dry, it's dusty, it's full of Muslims. But I promise you, you'll have the time of your life meeting Muslim men and women who will ask you, where do you come from? And then they'll ask you, and what do you believe? And you can tell them about Jesus for the first time in their life. Wow, what an opportunity. So go and make a difference. Give up your small ambitions. Give up your small prayers. Pray big. Pray big. And then attempt great things for God. And expect great things from God. Now, We can all do that. But you know, there's something else we all must do. Because not all of us are going to go. I get that. But I promise you, in the Bible, when when God said, through Jesus, and he said, go into all the world, he was talking to every single person in this room. Because the world begins over that doorstep. Every one of you is called to go. The question is where? Like Paul of Tarsus, Paul was called to go home. He went back to Tarsus. That's where he started. And God is calling people to be his witnesses in the hardest place of all, which is home. And I'm not just meaning the UK. That's a tough place. It's much harder ministering for the gospel here than it is in northwest China. As I said, no one's ever asked me what I believed on the high street. Nobody comes up to me and wants to talk to me and be my friend. Well, if they do, I maybe don't want to be their friend. (laughs) But it's hard to earn the right to the gospel. And I want to tell you something. As a representative of OMF, when people apply, one of the first questions I ask them, well, actually, let's not put it that way. Let me ask you a question. If I was to ask you to send me some light bulbs, light bulbs, yeah, for my living room, and you all gave me a light bulb, because I've got a big living room and I've got lots of lamps, you're not going to give me a light bulb that's broken, are you? You're not going to, oh, I'll, I know, I'll, I'll give him a light bulb that doesn't really work. And give it to me, and I'm so happy, and I've got my light bulbs, and I plug them in, I hit the switch, and it's as dark as it was before. So as a mission rep, when people apply, I want to know, are you shining where you are now? Are you witnessing for Christ now? Are you effective in attempting your evangelism now? Because if you're not doing it here, why on earth would I export you to China? They don't need duff light bulbs. They want bright people. People who are passionate about the gospel. People who are going to shine. Because Christ is at work in them. So don't send me a duff light bulb. 
And whilst you're here, preparing for whatever God's got for you, shine where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Make a difference right here and right now. The first and most important qualification for cross-cultural mission is being active in mission on your doorstep. And that's the hardest place. Now, sometimes people have all these dreams and plans and visions about what they're going to do then. And how they're going to prepare and one day, you know, when I've got a job and when I've paid off my student debt and maybe when I've got some theological education or maybe when I'm a bit mature as a Christian or whatever it will be, then, then I'll be ready to talk to somebody about Jesus. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for the right time. Scripture tells us today is the day of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Right now, every one of you, if you already believe in Jesus, you're ready to start witnessing for him. You're ready. You don't have to wait until you think you're good enough. You shouldn't wait until you think you know enough. You start right now. You may even think, oh, when I think about all my contacts, I don't know any non-Christians. Well, that's where you start. You start by making some friends who aren't Christians. It's a good plan. When we're in northwest China, working with people living amongst Muslims, we do this training with them. It's a basic evangelism training. But I think some of the first things are really relevant for the church here. Now, I don't have time to do the full hours training. Don't worry, I'm not I'm going to attempt it. So I'm going to introduce the idea so you get a flavor of what I believe God has laid on my heart for each one of you to think about in your day-to-day life. Okay? It goes like this. There are four questions that we need to ask ourselves when we're thinking about sharing the gospel with people. The first question, usually, when I get a group of people in the room in China, the first question they ask is, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? Because people are terrified that they might have to talk about the Trinity, or they might have to talk about God and science, or they might have to give a reason why God allows so much evil in the world, and they're terrified of that. And who wouldn't be? What am I going to say? Well, it's wonderful what you can say because God has given every one of you a unique story. And that's what you say. That's where you start. So I'll get everybody in the room. I want you to think about this right now. I want you to think, if you've got two minutes to talk to somebody about what God has done in your life, what would you say? Now, the way we try and structure it is we say, look, prepare yourself You've got to say something about what you were like before you knew Jesus, how you met Jesus, and the difference he's made to your life. They're the three things. What you were like, how you met him, and how he's made a difference. Now I know that there are people in this room who have always been Christians as far as they can remember, brought up in a Christian home. And for them, as Anna has said to me, and my wife too, it's difficult to say what I was like and I wish I had a testimony when I was, a, I was really bad and an evil drug addict and then God saved me. It would be much more powerful. No, no, thank God that you weren't. But every single one of us has a relationship with Jesus. And he makes a difference, doesn't he? Doesn't he? We need to be able to say what that difference is. Because let me tell you, you can have all the arguments you like about the authority of the Bible and the Trinity and creation. And, or, and people can refute that. But no one can refute your personal testimony. No one can refute your personal experience. Your story is true. And anybody you share it with, they can't say, oh no, that never happened to you. They can't say that. So I promise you, think carefully and write it down. Write down a simple way of explaining 
what the difference is that Jesus made to you. How you met him. And get rid of the religious jargon. Don't call it your testimony. Sounds like you're in court. No one knows what a testimony is. Can I tell you my story? Oh yeah, I love a story. Tell me your story. Well, it was like this. You know, before I met Jesus, when I was a Roman Catholic, I was brought up a Roman Catholic, and I just go to church all the time. But I didn't really think God spoke to me. And my understanding was I could just do whatever I liked because I was baptized as a Catholic and it'd be all right in the end. So I just lived my life however I wanted to. And it got really painful. And I made loads of mistakes. And I discovered that actually I wasn't very happy. And, uh, but I didn't know any other way. Then I heard this evangelist speak once, a guy called Louis Palau. And he told me that there were two ways to live. One was the way of, of, of darkness and one was the way of light. And there's no halfway house. You're either in one or the other. And I knew I was in the dark one. And I wanted to know how to be in the light one. So I asked him. And he told me to trust in Jesus. So I put my trust in Jesus. And I tell you, since that day, 13th of May 1989, my life's been totally different. I never would have thought I'm doing what I'm doing today. But Jesus is always there for me. Jesus is answering my prayers. He's actually changing my life. I've got a purpose and a hope. And it's brilliant. You tell it simply. Oh no, that never happened to you. They can't deny it. What do you say? You tell them your story. Second big question. I've only got time for this second one. I can't do three and four. Second big question is, who do you tell it to? Who are you going to tell? You're going to go and stand on the street corner, passers-by, down, you know, down, down in the in, in middle of Bath, and say, can I tell you my story? Can I tell you my story? Anybody want to know my story? No, 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 no. no. What does the Bible say? Do you remember I was talking to you about Cornelius? Who did Cornelius take to Jesus? Who did Cornelius take to Peter? His family. You know, in the time of Noah, God saved one man, yeah? No, God saved eight men. Eight people. Noah and all his. With the time of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, God saved Lot and members of his family. Rahab, do you remember the prostitute in Jericho? God saved her, didn't he? And her family. Paul and Silas are in jail. And the, the jailer meets Christ. And he saved him and all his. And Cornelius brings all his. Right. Guess who Jesus wants you to share with first? Your oikos is the Greek word. Your household is the word we use. This means, yes, your family, and those in your sphere of influence. Friends, classmates, contacts. And the moment you tell people in northwest China this, who are living amongst Muslim people, Muslim believers, you say, you've got to go and share this with your family, you can see the shock on their face. And somebody in this room, maybe lots of people in this room are saying, but you don't know my dad. (laughs) But you don't know my big sister. But you don't know what my uncle will do if I tell him this. I will get laughed at. I will get ridiculed. I will get shot down. So what we get them all to do, and this is the second thing for your homework. Your first point of homework is writing your story. Your second bit of homework is this. You're going to go home tonight, I pray, and you're going to turn a piece of paper over, and on the back you're going to write down everybody in your oikos. Everybody. Your family members, your friends, your classmates, your workmates, those you spend time with. Write them all down. From the one who will never get converted because he's a rabid atheist to the one who might be nearly there. Everybody in your oikos. And you're going to kneel 
And you're going to lay that on the floor before you. And you're going to say to the Lord, Lord, tell me which five to pray for every day this week that I get an opportunity to tell them my story. Okay? Five. And if I was going back here next week, I would say, right, stand up. Which five did you tell? Which five did you tell? Because that's the third aspect, you see, when we come to this sort of thing. We all think it's a great idea, but everyone's like, (laughs) what on earth makes you think I'm going to do this? What on earth do you think is going to make me do that? Well, what we do in the training in China is we come back together and we hold each other accountable and we say, okay, so how did you do with your five? Which five are you praying for? How can I help you pray? You have an opportunity with your five. This is what it's about, folks. It's about looking and praying and seeking opportunity right where you are. Because mission is bigger than the church. Because mission is not over there. Mission is next door. Mission is where you go when you leave this building. Mission is who you meet tomorrow on the train, on the way to work, in your office, in your workplace, in your school. That's your mission field. It's great to go. Praise God for those who are called to go overseas. But every one of you is also called to go one step beyond. Beyond the normal. Beyond the safe. Beyond the comfortable. Because God has called you to be witnesses. Jesus has called you to be his witnesses. What are you doing with that? Hey, I'm not laying a guilt trip on you. I'm telling you what the scriptures say. You've got a story to tell. Ask the Lord to tell you who you should tell it to. And then pray that he opens a door for that message. And pray that you'd walk through that door. And then come back next week and tell somebody, I did these five. And keep praying. And keep praying. If you want to know any more about the mission that I've spoken about, OMF, come and talk to me afterwards. I'm going to pray for you. Local mission is where every one of us starts. Every one of us starts with those in our circle. God is the one who opens the door. God is the one who opens the door in answer to prayer. The prayer of a a righteous man is powerful and effective. Yes, even that person you're thinking of now, who you can't imagine your wildest dreams would ever come to Christ, God can bring him or her too. God, God brought the apostle Paul into the kingdom. God brought you and me into the kingdom. May we be faithful to take one step beyond the door and reach out in love to a dying world. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful to you that we have such good news to share. We're so thankful to you, Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus. We're so grateful to you, O God, for this wonderful call you've given us to go into all the world, including just outside the door, with good news. Thank you that it's good news, Lord. I pray you'd help each of my brothers and sisters in this room tonight to reflect on that story, their own unique personal story of what you have done in their life, and to be confident in you, to be bold enough to tell those five people you're going to lay on their hearts tonight about their story. And we pray that through these 
ordinary people that we all are. Ordinary people with an extraordinary God. You would do great things. Things beyond our wildest dreams. Things beyond what we ask or imagine. You promise to do these things in your word. And I pray tonight for people in this room that we would see today as the day of salvation in the lives of some of these friends in our oikos, in our network, in our household. God, you can do this by the power of your spirit and you've chosen to use even us. So fill us with your spirit and send each one of us out into that mission field that you've given us tomorrow morning, this evening when we get home. And may we be faithful as your witnesses, recognizing that it's your grace alone that gives us the strength to fulfill the call on our lives. And we entrust all, all of this into your hands. Each person in the room, each person in our network, all is entrusted to you, Lord Jesus. Would you use even us for great things, to the glory and honor of your name and the upbuilding of your church and kingdom, we pray in your wonderful name. Amen. Oh man, it's good to be inspired again. Just while Gerald was speaking, I was thinking, God is the God of the nations, and his longing is for the nations. His longing is to bring salvation to the nations. And I had, I had uh, over, the, over the years, I've kind of often been inspired to pray for different countries. I haven't known why or what, or what difference it will make, but we pray. And it's really helpful, I think, to use maps sometimes. And while Gerald was speaking, I just had an idea. I thought, so easy, so often we stare at a computer screen, don't we, on our desk or a laptop or whatever. I want to encourage you to go home tonight and Google a world map. Get a really high resolution one and stick it tonight as your background, your screensaver, on, the, on your background of your laptop or your iPad or your whatever computer you might use. Other models are acceptable. And just stick it on there. And over the next few days, just when you flip up your desktop before you start working, see that map of the world and think, Lord, yeah, I'm going to pray for Iraq. Lord, I'm going to pray for South America. I'm going to pray for Korea, Bolivia, wherever it may be. Just look at a country and just say, Lord, would you bring breakthrough? Remember that God is the God of the nations. Because, do you know, in those countries, they're praying for us. I met a load of Brazilian pastors just a few years back. And they were here ministering this country. They were beautiful, beautiful people. And they said to me, Tim, we've come here because God's called us to pray for this country, to pray for the young people in this nation, to pray for revival, because many, many years ago, you sent missionaries from this country to our country, South America. And we have faith because of those missionaries. And now God's called us to come back to this country to bring blessing and to pray for you. So as we pray for those nations, they're praying for us. Let's be a global people. We pray for Whitcomb. We pray for this community, we pray for this city, we pray for this nation, and we pray for the nations of the world. Remember, God is the God of the nations, so that's just one idea. We're just going to share in a time of communion as we draw to a close, and we're going to do that as family, and there's something really helpful about doing that. We're going to do that in a really simple way. We're going to have some bread and wine in a, in a few minutes, I'm going to invite the band to come up, we're going to do it in the context of worship, and we're just going to break bread and share wine together. Though we're many, we're one body. And we're part of the global body that Gerard talked about. The church out in China, often under difficult persecution, parts of Asia, 
under terrible persecution parts of Africa at the moment. But we're one body and we stand together under Christ. And we stand together in his spirit, in the power of his spirit, trying to share the good news. We encourage the children to be back around, so families will encourage you to come and share communion with the children as families take some bread and share some bread with your kids. We'd love you to be able to do that. And we want to be family together. So we're going to do it really informally. When the worship's happening, I'm going to say a few words in a moment. We're going to break the bread. And you can come forward, and there'll be uh, some bread here and some bread here and some wine. Just come and take some bread and take some wine as we share in that together.